We are now nine days into the invasion of Ukraine. Cities have fallen, ports have been captured, and a key nuclear power station has been taken by the Russians. For Capital Crossfire, I'm Emmanuel Dyer Melado. Thank you for joining us as we continue our special coverage on the crisis in Ukraine. For today's special coverage, we spoke with Dr. Mikhail Alexeev, Dr. Robert Ortung, and Professor Michael Purcell about the evolving conflict in Ukraine. Professor Michael Purcell is a professor of international affairs here at GW who specializes in Russia's international security issues. Um, but kind of to, to start, so far we've seen uh, a distinct lack of effectiveness from Western sanctions. Um, we actually spoke with Professor Alexev from, from San Diego State University earlier today, and he had an alternative to sanctions. Um, he mentioned a return to brinksmanship to push Putin back. G given your experience with security issues and international business, um, would you say oligarchical sanctions worked? Um, and do you have any, um, and and do you have any kind of recommendations apart from that? Um, I, I'm interested to hear your interview with them. Um, I, I'm interesting that he would assess that they haven't worked, and uh, I guess you know his, I, I'm I'm going to assume his um, support for that idea is that they, they didn't prevent the war, obviously, um, and since the war started, they haven't. Uh, uh, seemingly constrain the behavior of Russia. So on that count, uh, fair enough, right? They, they, they haven't worked. But I think the other questions to ask is, is anything short of uh, physical force, the use of force, uh, going to have an effect? Because the, the effects of sanctions have to be calculated in. You have to be a rational actor in order to um, take account of, of what sanctions mean, right? And um, I'll go back a bit and say, the essential question here is, is Putin a rational actor, right? And then play professor for a second, step back a little bit, go, what's a rational actor? Um, so at the moment, uh, most of us who are sort of lifetime Russia watchers, and uh, I first went to um, Russia, the newly uh, formed Russian Federation in the summer of 1992 as a college student, uh, just after the Soviet Union had collapsed. So I've been watching and been part of that society in a sort of larger sense for a long time now. Um, until about 10 days ago, the good old days, I think most of us uh, thought that Putin was what we'd call a rational actor. And in that sense that he um, could sort of rationally calculate the risk of his behavior. And he's been pretty clever about that up until about a week ago. Um, whether that's the, annex, the invasion of Georgia, a variety of other things that are less visible. Um, the annexation of Crimea, uh, the invasion, fomenting of a war in eastern Ukraine, Syria, you know, the list kind of goes on to, to include a host of, of very aggressive, repressive measures in Russia itself against a domestic audience. All of that he's paid a very small price for, I think, relatively speaking. Um, this, this is on a different scale, right? So um, forget about sanctions, just, just the scale of, of destruction and enmity he's going to create within his own desired sphere of influence uh, really, uh, to me, says this is a guy who's not in touch with reality. This is a guy who's not, no longer, he's either not capable of rational calculations or his information and perceptions are so, so sort of uh, warped by isolation, his own grievances, his own cognitive biases. I don't know. Um, so in that sense, will our sanctions working at the moment? No. Do I think that means we step away from them? 
Uh, no, I don't think so either. I think this is, they are a necessary step, period, right? I mean, we had to do these things. They're very painful for a lot of people. You've seen somebody like um, uh, the, one of the oligarchs who owns Luke Oil, runs Luke Oil came out and said uh, the, the war must stop. Um, this is a wealthy guy who lost, I think, um, several billion dollars in market value uh, over the, the recent uh, 10 days or so. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we have to talk about Putin, but there's a lot of folks involved as well. And we're targeting their welfare and their, their willingness to, you know, sort of continue to support a regime that's not acting in their interests. Um, Putin sort of stands alone. He's, he has said in re re response to questions about his wealth uh, that effectively the czar is the richest man in the world, but because he has everything is his, uh, but at the same time, nothing is his, right? So um, he's just a poor public servant uh, in that sense. But um, anyways, long answer to your question, but um, I, I think sanctions are working. Um, I think they haven't achieved their desired final uh, effect, which is to, to constrain Russia's behavior. Uh, but I think it sets the conditions to uh, make that much more possible. And um, do I have a better recommendation? Uh, you said brinksmanship. I mean, we're always, we're always in that situation, right? I mean, certainly the U.S. and Russia have a mindset that we both uh, have the ability um, to threaten existentially. Um, our respective civilizations, which is a very sobering idea. And uh, uh, I, without hearing more about of this idea, um, I think we do enough of that. Uh, I guess the, the next step would be, for example, for NATO to get involved and enforce a no-fly zone. And, and in which case we very much uh, escalate into uh, a, a situation of brinksmanship where nuclear weapons, whether at the tactical or strategic level, is clearly gonna be at the forefront of everybody's mind. So. Uh, I, I'm of the mind we're, we're not there yet. I, I, I hate to see, um, to not do something when we could do something, um, but I, I think we have to remain sober about the, uh, the potential for destruction writ large. Absolutely. And with that, on several occasions, Putin has threatened the use of nuclear weapons if other powers intervene. Um, do you think this is him bluffing to prevent intervention, or is it your impression that he might actually follow through with that? Well, you know, we talk about nuclear weapons and the, the, the policy or doctrine for use, right? And we can kind of read, in fact, in our class now, we're reading some of those documents in 2020. I believe uh, the Russian Federation uh, published a, an updated uh, nuclear use doctrine, right? So the kind of document that, that's public facing that tells us when they would use nuclear weapons. Um, and, it, and there are some very specific instances listed there. It says if they face uh, a, th a critical threat to the, basically to the, to the nation, right? And it sounds very defensive and it sounds somewhat reasonable. Um, although it doesn't say in response only to nuclear aggression, it could be a conventional threat, right? Um, so, but that's, hey, that's great. At the end of the day, there's human beings in the decision loop and uh, these documents are left vague enough to, to make us wonder. And that's intentional. We do the same thing. We don't want to draw a line and say, if you go past the specific line only in that circumstance, we leave it gray, right? So um, we're both left guessing. That being said, from a, from a, a lifetime of military service, my response is, I, I can only responsibly assume that he, that he would use nuclear weapons. Um, I would assume that before this, if he felt that his nation or, or personal or regime safety was a threat, um, but his, his words and actions over the past 10 days make it uh, absolutely clear that we can only um, 
the only responsible path is to to assume that he would. Now we can talk about how, what that would look like under what circumstances and sort of war game that, if you will. But um, bottom line is he said he would, um, and uh, we're not in a position to 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 not believe him at the moment. Absolutely, and Russia has started to use some other internationally banned weapons um, with the UN and NATO presenting some evidence that Russia has deployed thermobaric and cluster munitions. Is this a, a signal to the West that he's willing to win by any means necessary? Um, that's not what comes to my mind. And, and maybe this is where military um, operational experiences comes in handy. Um, I you know, I tend to discount things that are done at the tactical level for a variety of reasons to, to not to not draw sort of more sweeping conclusions about it. Um, there's a whole lot of folks between President Putin and the sort of artillery but uh, battery commander who might be firing something like cluster munitions. Th those munitions are made available to them. They're designed for certain, uh, you know, in theory, they're designed to, 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 to attack certain targets. Um, but who to account for the decision making made by at the tactical level? Um, that being said, you know, let's let's step back and say, what's the trends in behavior? What are the standards for um, adherence to the law of war, so on and so forth? And if we look at Georgia, and I personally saw in Georgia, 2008, um, the use of cluster munitions uh, in populated areas, which um, I, I, I don't draw the conclusion that, that there's some larger point to that. But what it does tell me is this is a, a military that if you see this repeatedly, not just one instance, um, that's not particularly interested in, in protecting civilian life, that's not particularly interested in minimizing uh, civilian casualties. Uh, and, and there's certainly in Syria plenty of evidence that they targeted uh, structures like hospitals or other, other, um, other infrastructure populations that certainly are, would violate the laws of war, but, but as well just, just sort of portray a general disregard for the value of, of life of civilians. And with that, um, many accounts say that Russians Russia's campaign has been much slower than expected, um, that Putin had the forces to do this well before he did. What do you think has caused that slowdown? And will Russia be able to succeed in occupying key cities across Ukraine? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll make three, three points. One is um, I always expect these things to go slower than than the general, uh, you know, kind of civilian discourse would. Uh, why? Well, because there's a lot of a lot of folks on a lot of vehicles doing a lot of complicated stuff in somebody in another country, and um, there are ample opportunities for things to go wrong, right? And they generally do. Um, so, I, uh, based on historical precedent as well, these things tend to move pretty slowly. And if you kind of add up the amount, the distance that the forces have moved, and divided by the number of days. It usually falls into the anywhere from one mile a day to, to 10 miles a day, something like that, right? That's kind of what we're seeing here. And that's problems with fuel, that's problem with uh, road traffic, traffic ability, maintenance of, of vehicles, communication, pro all that all that stuff, right? Let's call it the fog of war, if you will, right? So that's, that's one reason why I expected it to go relatively slowly. Um, second reason why it's going even much more slowly and they're incurring significant casualties and losses of materiel is that you know, the Ukrainians get a vote here. It's their country. They're there and they're actively defending their country. And um, anybody who has even passing sort of familiarity with Ukraine um, in the last five to 10 years, and I've worked with them since at least 95. Uh, so I've kind of seen them evolve, if you will. Um, they're tough people. 
Um, they are Ray, their culture is sort of one that, that accepts that there's moments when you have to, to, to sacrifice and, and, and uh, engage in collective actions. And I think it's, that's clear to the world now. It's very inspirational, but they've always been that way. And, uh, and they're, they're pretty good now. I mean, they've, they've always been good individually, you know, at small unit level. Um, but now they have, uh, you know, good kit and uh, good training and good leadership. So um, they've slowed the Russians down. And what that means is the Russians' plan, which was based on a lot of false assumptions, um, some of those assumptions were that the Ukrainians wouldn't be good at this, that they wouldn't fight back, that the regime wasn't legitimate, um, that the Ukrainian people would somehow be happy about this. All, all of those are firmly detached from reality. Uh, but the consequence is that uh, what Putin's plan was, seemingly, which he didn't share with everybody, I, I, I gather, um, was to very quickly take control, right? And if he had done that, we'd be living in a very different world at the moment, right? We would have had to make hard choices and there would have been sort of implications for that in respect to our idea of what's in his power. And uh, it's gone slow enough and poorly enough that um, it, it's now a real struggle. And uh, uh, I think there's some very obvious reasons for that and there's some very big implications for it. And we've also seen as many as 15,000 troops from abroad volunteer for the Ukraine Armed Forces. Uh, they are supposed to arrive in the coming days. What kind of effect do you expect this to have? Um, I, I, I guess we, we can look at it two ways. One, one way is what's the tactical effect? You know, what's the value of sort of having these folks uh, come into theater? Um, that, and that's related to how, how long the Ukrainians can sort of hold out, if you will. And um, we're going to come into a situation soon in certain places where just simply the, the number of civilians in a, in a space and lack of access to water and food and electricity and those kind of things are going to become a problem, right? So that might dictate the pace of things. But um, um, the infusion of, of individuals is, is not going to have a, a significant effect uh, very quickly because it's hard to assimilate. 15,000 people to do anything, right? I mean, volunteering, volunteers, whether it's folks back, you know, in the States trying to, here, trying to figure out how do we, how do I individually do something to help Ukraine, right? It takes a lot of effort and, 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 and uh, action and, and organization. Doing that in a war zone is, is really hard. I, I noticed one guy, a Brit, who's already there, he kind of wrote back and said, well, it's, it's very chaotic. Well, I mean, what did you expect, buddy? Um, this is probably going to be chaotic uh, for, for the long run, right? So, um, but let's talk about the second effect, which is sort of the, the boost to morale that, you know, how many, how many countries have at least one person, right, rolling into Ukraine, hopefully with good intentions of helping out. Um, I, I, it's hard to discount, you know, Napoleon said the, the physical is to the moral is the three, uh, one is the three, right? So this moral boost um, to the legitimacy of their fight, uh, I think, uh, has already and will continue to have a very significant effect because it uh, not only bolsters their sense of purpose, but it also deflates the Russians' uh, faith and confidence in their own uh, government. And we're seeing plenty of evidence that that's, that's in effect at the moment. In kind of going back to Russia's uh, activities, in one of your papers, you discuss Russia's information warfare and how they seek to influence and disrupt adversaries through it. How would you describe Russia's approach to information and specifically in regards to this conflict? Well, you know, that the 
the paper that, that I published uh, focused on one aspect mainly of, of, of information warfare, which is the cognitive dimension, right? The sort of the use of narratives and, and there's sort of a laundry list of very inclusive, right? It's, it's up here, you know, how do people perceive things? How does it affect them in a moral sense? How does it mobilize them or not? Uh, how does it shape their worldview? And uh, I think I, I, you know, I look back 10, 20, 30 years um, to see how the Russian state was able to gather enough, you know, to mobilize itself to even attempt something like this, because it is as, I mean, for those of us who spent a lot of time in that space and watch and read in, in Russian and, you know, um, it's absolutely nuts, right? I mean, it's really still to this day hard to, to imagine this is going on because these are brotherly peoples. And most Russians in European Russia are of mixed descent that includes Ukrainian blood. So in effect, it's a bit of a civil war. So what Russia has done very effectively, um, very cynically, very perniciously, um, is to manage the information environment uh, for their domestic audience and uh, to, in order to shape a certain worldview. Um, if you may be familiar with this, but there, there's discussion often of the, the battle between the fridge and the TV. And if, if you've heard of this right, the idea is that quality, of, so this is a sort of the social contract that the Russian people had with Putin, that when he came into office, he was very fortunate that oil prices went up, that GDP doubled over eight years. He brought some some renewed competence to government services as well. Um, but the idea was that, hey, the fridge gets fuller, so we're willing to put up with a, a loss of, of liberties. Um, and as things get worse in terms of quality of life, and, and since 2014, there's been some significant pressure there, they've really amped up the TV. And by that, we mean not a physical, like TV certainly is the most important mode of transmission at the moment in Russia still, but the, the state sort of led effort, uh, a state promoted effort to create these narratives that would somehow get somebody to believe uh, even remotely that the, the, the Ukrainian uh, administration at the moment, which is there because of a free and fair election, um, is somehow neo, uh, a neo-Nazi or a fascistist uh, um, uh, regime is, is, is nuts. But um, uh, when you're talking to many Russians or when you're interacting uh, uh, with them, they've, they've been cultivated enough through the use of propaganda and very sophisticated uh, narratives through movies, through TV, through online, uh, through proxy actors, uh, such that they've created this environment where it's reasonably acceptable to much of the Russian audience. And uh, there's folks who aren't, who quite frankly are well, you know, critical thinkers enough, educated enough, worldly enough to sort of defend themselves, if you will, um, but it's not the majority of, of people. And uh, so it's a very non-technical answer to your question, but um, uh, if you spend a bit of time looking through sort of, um, Russian uh, popular culture, uh, you would be shocked by the, both the subtlety of, of some of these messages and, and, and how it gets there, state support or control of, of even, you know, sort of commercial movies, uh, all the way up to the sort of nutty stuff that appeals only to the sort of, you know, fringes, but they still uh, uh, manage to, uh, and are intent on, on generating that kind of sentiment there as well. Thank you so much. And I think kind of as a, as a follow-up to that, you mentioned the role of television. Um, in the days since the conflict has broken out, we've seen Russian state television banned across the EU. Um, and RT America just shut its door yesterday's, uh, yesterday evening. Um, what would you say the role of Russian TV news, um, like Channel One, RTTV, and NTV, um, 
in a, is the role in affecting the public opinion of the Russian people in kind of the cognitive sense, like you've spoken about? Yeah, oh, it's it's um, it's like boiling a lobster alive, right? The, the Russian people have sort of been very slowly sort of desensitized to the lack of of press freedoms, media freedoms, and um, I think you know I think I have as well. It doesn't mean I accept it anymore, but but over time, since 2005 was the last time I lived there, sort of full time was a pivotal year when they really started putting the screws to some of these organizations. Um, and uh, we've become sort of dependent upon a few outlets that still um, have critical thinkers and, and freedom of expression. And uh, the state TV is long, has long been absurd um, and ridiculous if, uh, if you're well-informed. Uh, but these other outlets were always there. And quite frankly, if you wanted to stay well-informed, and to this day, if you get a VPN and kind of, you know, put a little effort in, you can generally get to whatever you want to get to if you're a Russian citizen. But it takes a lot of effort, right? And there's an academic concept related to behavioral economics, I think, was where it was sort of hatched. But the idea of rational ignorance, right, that it, you raise the cost of informing yourself to such a level that the gains aren't worth it. So many Russians have sort of hit that. Uh, calculation and said, you know what, it's not worth me digging around. And, and some people just simply aren't capable of it, right? Um, uh, older folks that are technologically literate um, are sort of cut out of that space. So uh, the short answer to your question is Russian TV, state TV. Russian TV is state TV, full stop. And um, it is absolutely enthralled to the state. And uh, it gets worse and worse by the day. Um, it has been doing so since at least 2005 uh, um, and even a bit earlier. Thank you so much. And kind of as our, our last question, we've seen footage of, of thousands of Russian citizens gathering in cities from Ma Moscow to St. Petersburg um, with the Russian police becoming involved in arresting thousands. How important is the support of the Russian people to Putin's actions? And do you think these protests are indicative of broader trends in the Russian population? Um. Great questions, right? I'll give my opinion, but uh, we should all be continuing to ask this every day, looking for sort of indications and warnings, right, of, of, of how, uh, how much discontent there is. Um, but I'd start by saying that uh, Putin over the past, particularly since 2012, 2014, 2016, has really ramped up the repressive um, infrastructure in Russia. So, um, he created the National Guard, for example, and to Americans, that sounds very benign. The Russian National Guard, in effect, has been sort of a, a mass uh, scale uh, uh, repression, entity of repression, right? So that's typically who's out um, in, in larger, larger gatherings arresting folks. Um, a benchmark is the last time there was significant societal pressure was 2011, and there was Duma or parliamentary elections. And, and they were generally seen to be, um, you know, rigged, basically, because they weren't, even though maybe you can vote for whoever you'd like to, they were free, they weren't fair, right? People couldn't get on the ballots, they couldn't campaign. So uh, Navalny, who, um, Alexei Navalny, who's, you know, well known now, sits in prison in Russia at the moment, he led those protests, or at least became prominent throughout those. So that was a big deal. And there was 11,000 arrests over the course of a few weeks in 2011. Um, there's an entity in Russia that's keeping track of the number of arrests currently. And it's, uh, I think this morning's up to 8,000 something, right? So pretty rapidly approaching at least that benchmark. And this is in a state where the repressive entities were primed and ready to go um, to take folks off. And maybe you've seen it, but there was a, 
an elderly woman who supposedly was a blockade nick which means she survived the blockade of of st petersburg or leningrad during world war ii which was horrific um and i think she's an artist uh and well known but she was out picketing and she had the well, if you have the posters that's when you run afoul of the law she had some very well written ones out and uh these police escorted this elderly woman uh hero uh in anybody's definition soviet or otherwise uh to the paddy wagon and uh, I know that's circulating on Russian social media at the moment. So um, the amount of discontent at the moment is approaching sort of historical highs. Um, how important is it? Uh, you know, who's the best guy to tell you that is the, the, the Kremlin, because they are very, very tuned in to this. And they've built these, re these repressive re uh, mechanisms into place exactly for this moment. And uh, I think for Americans, we, we tend to think of ourselves as a sort of country born of revolution. And we tend to look for these you know, crescendo moments where the where a population might sort of take control, as happened in Ukraine, as happened in, in, in Georgia, and what we call the color revolutions across that space. Um, we talked about this with Russians and amongst us for, for 20 some odd years. Uh, I think probably a better place to look for significant change to happen would be within the regime itself. That's why sanctions are important to make um, uh, make the uh, the folks around Putin. That's, very, that's a very Russian way to get get out of power is uh, is actually to have somebody inside your space tell you, hey, it's time for you to go and that there's precedent for that. And in fact, um, there's a meme floating around, supposedly, not supposedly, I've kind of confirmed it now. It's a picture of uh, Shogoy, the, the defense minister and the, the chief of staff, chief of the armed services, sitting together at Putin's very long table, which I'm sure you've seen. And uh, the, the chairman saying to the defense minister, hey, you're sitting closer you know, hit him with something, meaning Putin, right? And the defense minister says, all right, I, what am I going to hit him with? He's 20 meters away. And the joke is twofold, right? One, that the Russian people, many Russian people were hoping that he'll be taken out by his own folks. But then secondly, poking fun at the Russian army that they've done poorly. And these are Russians making fun of this, that they can't hit something that's only 20 meters away, right? So it sort of gives you some insight uh, in two ways in the sort of the cognitive space of Russians at the moment. At Crossfire, we'd like to thank all of the experts who spoke with us today for providing their invaluable insights as we continue to track developments in the evolving conflict. As the situation develops, we will continue to provide the GW community and the public at large with the most up-to-date information and expert input. So stay tuned for more coverage on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find all those links in the description. From all of us at GWTV, I'm Emmanuel Dyer Melado. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.